All right, and we're recording now. All right, and testing. One, Test- two, three. Testing one, two, three. Okay. Hello, and welcome back to the Frame Lab podcast. It's Gil Duran and George Lakoff. Hey, George, how you doing? I'm okay, Gil. How about you? Doing all right. It's been a while since we've done one of these things. We took a bit of a hiatus during the um, interesting last uh, year and a half or so. Well, I miss it, actually. Um, these are good things to do. Yeah, and we've had some people reaching out to be like, where did FrameLab podcast go? And you know, it does take a, quite a bit of effort to put these things together and to find the time. But now I'm back in the Bay Area, closer to where you live, and we're going to try to give this another go here in 2021, going back into 2022 when things might get a little more dangerous for the nation and the world. Uh, I mean, one of the biggest changes, well, there's been a few big changes since the last time we sat down, but one of them is that uh, Donald Trump is no longer president. We have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House. We have Democrats in control of uh, the House and kind of almost in control of the Senate, I guess, if you can call that control. Uh, But there's no proof that that's going to last a lot longer. What, What do you... You know, before we get into the topic today, what, what do you feel about what happened in the election and uh, what the what the future looks like? Well, and with Biden, we lucked out. Uh, no, it's not clear that we'll always luck out. Um, you know, the um, the Democrats could use better messaging. They could use better communication in general, and um, the lack of better messaging and better communication can hurt the world. You know, uh, this stuff matters. You, the whole time I think were, well, you like Pete Buttigieg, but you also, uh, toward the end there, were a big fan of Biden and thought he could win when a lot of folks thought he maybe couldn't win. What What do you think Biden has as his, uh, what makes Biden a powerful politician, or at least someone who could beat Trump? I think my wife Kathleen said it very well. Uh, Biden is kind of an Irish warrior. <laughs> you know, he's, he's tough. Um, he's both empathetic and tough together. And it's a, an amazing combination. Someone who really, really cares about people, whether they agree with him or not, uh, and who um, isn't afraid to come out and say what he means and who isn't afraid to come out and uh, attack what needs to be attacked. Uh, And I respect that. The other big thing that's happened, obviously, is the COVID pandemic, which has uh, exacerbated a lot of the existing tensions Mm -hmm. in American society and kind of made some of the divisions between us very clear, especially when it comes to things like vaccines or public health rules or masks. What do you think are the... What's the overriding things you've learned or, or seen, observed during the pandemic in, uh, in terms of politics? Well, um, conservatives have um, a view that the government is trying to, to do things that are bad for them and that they don't like. And that uh, if it's not necessarily bad for them, it will go against their freedom. And the idea of um, that kind of freedom, uh, you know, freedom uh, that is there, uh, that allows them to um, not take vaccines, 
not taking a vaccine is not just about you. It's about everybody you encounter. You know, you can spread COVID. And you can kill people that way. I mean, these are matters of life and death. Uh, public health is no joke. So you bring us directly to the topic today, which is uh, freedom, death, and COVID uh, in this particular era, uh, because a lot of the fight against mask rules, against public health rules, against vaccinations have been rooted in this twisted idea that freedom means the freedom to die of COVID, basically, which may be literally true. We are definitely seeing a lot of people die because they're refusing to take the vaccine. But you've written a lot in the past about the idea that conservatives tend to have a very different idea of what freedom is than progressives do. And I think you've written, in American history, no idea is more important than the idea of freedom. At the same time, freedom doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. Um, and it seems like we're in a constant battle, not just over COVID and vaccines and masks, but over a whole range of issues, almost every issue, about what freedom actually means. And so I guess my first question to you is, what are the def these different definitions of freedom? How, how does conservative freedom differ from progressive freedom? And I guess the best way to start is by describing the concept that you just, you talk about in your book, Who's Freedom? What What is simple freedom? Well, you know, the simple freedom, which is freedom is freedom is freedom. You know, uh, you do what you want to do. You're free to do it, period. And um, that ignores the fact that you're not really free to go against the freedom of others. You know, uh, freedom in a society is not something that says uh, you can um, stop other people from being free. I mean, that, that's elementary. And there's a difference between um, progressive and conservative views of freedom. Uh, a progressive view of freedom involves empathy involves caring about other people. And the conservative view of freedom does not. And that's a huge, huge difference. If you care about other people, if you have empathy for them, you don't want them to get sick. <laughs> you know, it's that simple. Or get sick of something they could die from or spread a disease from. You know, uh, that this is not an issue of just individual responsibility which is what conservatives tend to talk about, it's a matter of social responsibility, which is not what conservatives tend to talk about. So basically, social, simple freedom seems to be this basic idea that freedom means the ability to do anything you want to do no matter what. Nobody can stop you. It's your freedom to do it. But we all know from a very you know, basic civics education that you can't, uh, for instance, throw a punch at someone else's nose. Or you know, you may have a freedom to own a gun, but that doesn't mean you can go downtown and just fire it off randomly. There's There are laws that prevent us from doing whatever we want to do. The shouting fire in a theater. In a crowded theater. So I guess the questions get more murky when we're dealing with something like a, a pandemic with a, a vaccine, because there's, to some degree, an indirect, uh, or the perception of a more indirect way we're all impacting each other 
in the situation, even though it actually is pretty direct when we're thinking about the transmission of a virus. And what I've seen is a lot of arguments that, oh, you can't force us to get a vaccine, even though we do require vaccines for school. We always have. We all got vaccinated to go to school for the most part. Um, but the idea that somehow this is a new imposition on freedom and that forcing people to get the vaccine is depriving us of liberty and imposing tyranny, when in fact, you could also define freedom as the freedom of all of us to get out of this pandemic and to live. Ultimately, it comes down to uh, life and death, as you said. And it seems to me what what we've seen is Republicans saying that freedom means the freedom to die of a preventable disease and to cause others to die. And you don't really hear progressives saying freedom means protecting ourselves from unnecessary death. You don't hear... I, I, I guess what I'm saying in a bit of a jumbled way is that you don't really hear progressives talking about this as a freedom issue, but you hear Republicans framing it as a freedom issue. Why Why is that? I think progressives don't really understand um, that empathy and democracy go together. You can't have democracy without caring about other people. Uh, you know, so that uh, if you believe in democracy, you implicitly believe in empathy, but it's not overt. Mm -hmm. People are not taught that, which is tragic. And um, conservatism is not about empathy. Conservatism is not about caring about the well-being of others. Freedom is is something that, that, you know, what are you not free to do when you are free? You're not free to stop the freedom of others. You're not free to limit other people's freedom. You know, freedom has to, is a social issue, not a private issue, not an individual issue. And that's something that's missing, um, you know, in Republican thought. For Republicans, Republicans and conservatives in general, freedom is an individual issue and not a social issue. It has nothing to do with empathy for other people. Whereas from a democratic or progressive point of view, it has everything to do with other people. That is, you, you know, you're, you're not free to impose on the freedom of others. And, you know, by spreading a virus, you're imposing on the freedom of others. By refusing to take a vaccine, you're imposing on the freedom of others. And, um, you know, it's not just about you. Uh, and that's very important, that you are socially embedded. What you, the way you act affects other people. And you're responsible for how it affects other people. The idea that you are responsible for how your actions affect other people in general is a very important uh, idea in society. That's what social responsibility is about. But you don't hear conservatives talking very much about social responsibility. Unless it's something they agree with. Because one of the interesting, when we talk about vaccines, you often hear the term these days, medical freedom, right? We should have medical freedom. But, and that's not always coming from conservatives. You have some other groups of people now who are very anti-vaccine and may not be conservative-leaning, but use this term medical freedom. But when Republicans talk about 
medical freedom, they're not meaning things like a woman's right to choose. They're not talking about reproductive health. They're not talking about abortion. But the rules seem to change when it comes to things like vaccines. Why, why is that? Because vaccines have to do with the health of other people and people in society in general, not only yourself. They have to, it has to do with empathy. Vaccines essentially have to do with empathy. And if you don't have empathy for others, then vaccines aren't about, aren't about that. You know, uh, and that is a big divide among many conservatives and progressives. So politics has everything to do with this. It's not just about science. I mean, medicine is, is science. The way vaccines work is a matter of science. But what's interesting here is that conservatives don't always accept the uh, results of science. That there's a politics around whether you accept scientific results, which ought not to be. Do you think if Donald Trump were the one saying, get vaccinated, that conservatives would be more willing to do that? I mean, the, the vaccine was developed while Trump was president. So it's interesting the way this has become politicized now that Biden is the president as, you know, if you're a, a staunch conservative, you're, if you're a MAGA Trump type, you're not supposed to get vaccinated when, you know, this is not a democratic vaccine. This, this vaccine doesn't have a political bent. But we've seen this demonization of Dr. Fauci uh, and this idea that, you know, it's become a, a cultural, political stand to take to not get vaccinated. What explains that when it, 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 it isn't political? It, it was developed under a conservative president. A conservative president that says we are not empathetic about others. I mean, um, I think of what Obama said when he first ran for the presidency. He said, the first thing my mother, best thing my mother taught me was empathy, caring about others. And that's what I'm about. And that's what this presidency is about. And that's what every presidency should be about. It should be about caring for the people whose uh, health and defense you are responsible for. And that's something that's absent from Trump. Trump doesn't care about other people. You know, uh, I keep thinking about this uh, Woodward interview where they were looking at a, um, uh, a graveyard of people who died in World War II, and Trump called, called them suckers. Mm. You know, uh, he the avoid, dead veterans. This was a big story. And, uh, right. He avoided the draft. He got his doctor to say that he had you know, uh, problems with his heel or something and couldn't march mm -hmm. or something Bo like that. Bone spurs. What? Bone, bone spurs. spurs. Yeah. Right. Cadet bone spurs, I think, was the nickname. People. Yeah, right. So, but he got the doctor to, to say that he, could, he couldn't be drafted for those reasons. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the draft because that's one thing that comes to mind when I was thinking of the ways in which we, in which freedom... As the conservatives always said when I was growing up, freedom isn't free. I think there was a, a commercial, it was like a military slogan. Freedom isn't free. Some of us have to fight and die for freedom. The idea that 
there's a time when you sacrifice for freedom and right. what is it the, the the tree of liberty must occasionally be watered with blood there's all these uh ways in which we understand that freedom requires sacrifice freedom requires giving up your life possibly for the greater good we you know when you're young and a young man you have to sign up for the selective service when you turn 18. Right. the idea being that if there's a war you can be drafted you can be compelled to serve against your will. So the idea of the draft is interesting to me because here's a situation where we have something that threatens all of us and that requires us to pull together and work together and take action together that's for the public good. And for most of my life, it was the conservatives who, who, who were the people who supported things like the draft and it was the more progressive people in my life who were anti-war or against things like compelling people into service. And now it's completely flipped. Here we have the biggest threat besides climate change of most of our lifetimes. And it seems like some of these uh, conservative types just want to give in to the enemy or on the side of COVID. And so how, how does that, how is the draft for a war different from the draft for a vaccine in the conservative mindset and, and why? The draft for a war has to do with masculinity. It's a, you know, it has to do with um, uh, real men uh, being, you know, fighting against real other real men uh, to the death, if necessary. Um, there's a that there's a certain view of masculinity about that. So you're saying that the conservative version of freedom works a little more like that. It, it, yes. It's about, in that case, extending American military might, and in in that case. You can have your freedom as an individual citizen stripped away and be forced to fight in the war. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the pandemic, how is it different? You know, when, when thousands of Americans, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying, it's just not what a masculine enough threat or act to get vaccinated. I think it's much easier to take a jab in the arm than to have to pick up a gun and fight in a war. It has to do with science. What I don't understand is why so many conservatives are, you know, refutes, try to refute science, ignore science. You know, I was raised as a scientist. I was a scientist. I'm a scientist. That's, you know, my profession was in cognitive science, but I went into uh, the study of physics and, and um, the mathematics behind that and so on. As part of my training, I went to MIT. I was a scientist, you know. And... Uh, and if you're anti-vaxxer, it means you're not, you don't understand science or you don't want to follow science, which, which is quite terrible. I mean, if the science is right, it's the way the world works mm -hmm. and you're going against reality. Well, there's a lot of science that everyone does accept, right? That uh, uh, how planes fly or the science of nuclear bombs or the science of nuclear energy. So it seems to me there's a, that if, if science not, takes they, on a certain... Go ahead. But they don't know the science of it. They know the effect of the science. They know planes fly. They don't know why planes fly. Mm -hmm. They don't know the science behind planes flying. Who, how many people, if you ask them, you know, why, you know, what is the science behind planes flying? That can tell you. But they don't question that and refuse to get on planes because planes don't fly. Yeah, they, they work. It works. Know. Yeah. But yeah. so does the vaccine. So there's some kind of political block there, a way that it's been defined differently. That's interesting, I think. 
Well, it's been it's not been defined as something that works. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the conservatives are not saying this works, but you shouldn't take it. I've never heard any anti-vaxxer say the vaccine works fine. It'll keep you from getting sick and dying, but you shouldn't take it. They don't say that. You know, they say this is something that uh, the government is trying to foist on you. And or that it doesn't work, or all the misinformation they spread that uh, you, right. get, you, you will get it if you, if you take it, etc. Yeah, right. There's misinformation and, and so on. But it's not uh, a matter of accepting the science and saying going against it. Let's talk a little bit more about freedom uh, as a concept, as you do in, in Whose Freedom. You write in Whose Freedom that progressive freedom is dynamic freedom. You can't just stop with the founding fathers. You have to keep going. And that the great ideas in America have been expandable freedoms like civil rights, tolerance, education, science, public health, workers' rights, university system, banking system, infrastructure. How does that differ from how conservatives see freedom? Is freedom for conservatives static? It limits, freedom for conservatives stops with individual responsibility and individual rights. That's what it's about there. It's not about social responsibility. I mean, let's take that distinction. Individual responsibility versus social responsibility. Conservatives don't have a view of social responsibility. You are not, empathy is not there. Empathy requires you extending your responsibility to social responsibility. If you don't have empathy as a basic part of your value system, and conservatives don't, then you don't have that view of freedom. And so the empathy is what makes the progressive view of freedom dynamic because we expand it to include more people because we see that they deserve rights as well versus Mm -hmm. the conservative view of freedom, which is that the expansion of the liberty of others impinges upon our freedom and our rights. Or can. Or can. Can. Right. That it's, you know, that it's our thing. And, you know, the, 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 the issue of empathy is at the heart of this. And it's at the heart of the difference between progressives and conservatives. And it's not discussed. And that's one thing that really bothers me. People in the Democratic Party don't discuss empathy when empathy is the heart of what they believe. They don't understand. I think the empathy is so basic, so much there that's unconscious, that they don't see its role in their own uh, view of politics. And that's tragic. It's tragic that they don't see it. I mean, Obama was the first you know, president who came out and said that. Biden is very much aware of empathy. Uh, he doesn't talk about it as much as, as Obama did. But it's there, very, very clearly there. Um, you know, whereas conservatives, you know, don't, you know, don't have this. It's just not there. Do you think that it helps to talk about empathy in an overt way, or is there some other way that empathy should be 
constantly introduced into the the conversation. It seems that conservatives are a bit more shameless about directly addressing particular values out loud. It's worse than that. (laughs) Um, There are a lot of people who don't distinguish between empathy and sympathy or empathy and, um, you know, um, bias. Mm-hmm. So there are, there, there's an essay uh, by a noted psychologist called Against Empathy, where the assumption is that empathy is bias and that we shouldn't be biased. And it's just... The, Bias is a very different concept than, than empathy. You know, uh, by empathy, it, bias has to do with, um, uh, well, it depends on how it's used. I mean, there's uh, bias that has to do with uh, uh, favor, you know, giving favor to somebody. Uh, and there's bias that has to do with uh, going against science, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but I'll, I'll take the going against science uh, as well as the other one, as well as, you know, um, personal bias. Uh, but uh, for many people, that's not the case. Uh, empathy has to do with caring about others. You know, I keep um, going back to Obama who said in one of his, probably his first really uh, talk that, that got him national attention, empathy, he said, was the most important thing my mother taught me. It's putting myself in the shoes of others. You know? And that's what a president should be doing. If you're a president, you have responsibility for others, and so you have to know what's right for them. So you think that requirement... For empathy, the idea that you have a responsibility to care for others helps explain the reason why uh, vaccine mandates are seen as a violation of the conservative version of morality and freedom. Exactly. I think that's right. One of the interesting questions that arises, we were talking about this a little bit earlier this week, was there's this idea that tyranny means forcing people to show uh, that they're vaccinated to go into a restaurant or to go to school or to wear masks and that this is a a violation of freedom. At the same time, you can just continue to get takeout. You can get groceries delivered. You're not completely cut off from living in society if you won't get vaccinated or won't wear a mask. It, It seems to me more that freedom in this case is our freedom to not be exposed to people who are not respecting public health and safety. Uh, So if you can't go into a restaurant and eat if you're not vaccinated indoors, uh, then you don't have the freedom to impinge on my freedom to not be exposed to your disease. It's a bit of a a reversal there. That's exactly right. But again, it seems to me like we never define it in those terms. Well... I mean, I do, but yeah. I mean, to be free does not give you the right to impose on the freedom of others. But for many people, it does. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, conservative, in fact, that's what conservative freedom is about. It keeps the right to impose on the freedom of others. It says if you're free from a conservative perspective, you can impose on the freedom of others. So they should be able to spread the disease because that's their freedom is the idea there. Right. And, but this gets, a, gets very tricky because um, if you're progressive, does your view of freedom extend to conservatives who are imposing on the freedom of others? So this is actually a transitive notion. That is, to, be fr to not impose on the freedom of others means the others should not be imposing on the freedom of others either. So that's, there's a transitivity in there that's not obvious. What do you mean by transitivity? Uh, <laughs> uh, a has a relation to B, B has a relation to C, so A has a relation to C. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't go to MIT. I think we know what you mean. Um, Kind of connected, but a little, but expanding the topic a little bit. Last year, a poll of Trump supporters found that a large majority of Trump supporters, over eighty percent, agreed with the statement that real Americans are losing their freedom. Kind of a loaded question there. What's a real American? What do you read into this response? And who are the real Americans in the eyes of the MAGA people? And does this mean they see freedom as a zero-sum game to some extent? Well, um, first of all, they see the real Americans as the Trump Americans. You know, the people who believe in strict father morality, uh, the people who don't have empathy in general, um, and who don't care about the freedom of others, therefore they're, you know. And... Um, there are a lot of people that are like that. I mean, you know, uh, probably 35 to 37% of the population. Mm -hmm. Some, that's my, my guess, my best guesstimate is something like that. And that's a huge percentage of the population. It's not a majority, but it's a huge percentage. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, those are the people that Trump, that's in Trump's base. 35 to 7%, 37%. Now he can extend that in certain cases to get a majority. You know, and he doesn't have to go that far. And in some cases he has. But uh, what's interesting is um, that Biden uh, has real empathy and he also um, doesn't mince words. <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, the idea of masculine authority is there in Trump, but it's also there in Biden. I mean, it's, it's powerful. Why is, so you're basically saying that Biden is reaching people who have both conservative and progressive tendencies, right? Sort of a biconceptual, because what, what's the importance of this masculine authority, you know, which would be kind of a controversial well, in today's discourse? The masculine authority... Is be, is one of the necessary conditions for, uh, you know, for Trumpism. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same. There's a masculine authority that goes beyond that. That is not at all like that. So it's a necessary condition for Trumpism, 
but it is, um, it's, you know, it goes way beyond that. And, uh, and, and it can be paired with empathy. The word freedom has come to be associated, like the word liberty, with the freedom, the individual freedom to not get vaccinated. And, it, and as we've discussed here, Democrats aren't really doing much to go and talk about freedom in terms of why we're increasing our freedom by getting vaccinated, by freeing ourselves, liberating ourselves from a deadly pandemic. What's going to happen if Democrats don't start doing a better job of fighting over the definition of freedom, of framing their ideas in terms of freedom? Uh, for, for example, it comes to mind that um, you know, we've got this plan, Build Back Better. Um, if the Republicans were trying to do a plan like this, it'd be called something like the American Family Freedom Plan. Yeah. And they'd be fighting for your family's freedom. You know, would be, um, you know, what does build back, build what back better? It almost seems like an echo of make America great again, build it back better. Um, so what happens if we don't start using the term freedom and using it to argue for ideas that are more helpful to more people as opposed to selfish, individualized concerns? Well, there you have an implicit notion of empathy. Better for more people. Mm -hmm. Better for society in general. Right? So empathy is built into what, what Biden means by better. He doesn't mean better for corporations mm -hmm. or better for corporate profits. That's not what he's about. That's not what that slogan is about. You know, it's supposed to be better for society. Do you think most people know that? It's implicit. It's not explicit. You know, if, they, if you ask somebody who says they understand that, uh, do you believe, is Biden say, saying this is better for corporations? And corporate profits, they'll say, hell no. <laughs> you know, people know that. I mean, they know what it, let's put it this way, they know what it isn't. Mm -hmm. Well, the conservatives certainly do, I'd say. Um, we have some questions now from some of our listeners who wrote in. Uh, let's try to get around, get, get to some of these. First, we have a question from Jim Kindle. Don't the intuitive framers have the edge on us who need to study the art to be effective? You speak of Donald Trump as a master salesman, but clearly his objectively great talent for this is not part of any great intellectual effort or great study. So my question is more, how effective can those who must study and train really be? Most of all, how do we practically get there? Um. You practically get there by a concentrated awareness, by a concentration, by being aware of when you're framing, which is not easy. I mean, it takes work. It takes intellectual work to say, oh, I'm framing this this way. To be able to, if someone asks you, how are you framing this, to be able to answer that question. Or to just know it period, or, or have it instinctively. Um, and that's non-trivial. That means you have to be aware of framing in general. And uh, if you aren't, if this is something you have to just consciously master, then it takes a lot of work. Do you think people can be trained to frame? Yeah. Do you think there, there are any programs right now for training? I mean, you started the Rockridge Institute some years ago to try to do this, but it, it turned out to be complicated. It was complicated because there are many other things that it had to do, 
and it had to raise money, and it had to, uh, you know, go through uh, internal power struggles and organizations and, and all sorts of uh, other things. Um, you know, it was one of those things that was hard to pull off mm. for many reasons. Uh, but uh, framing is something that can be taught. Um, and it, I learned it from Charles Fillmore, my colleague, my late colleague, who, for whom it was not a political thing. Mm -hmm. uh, if he saw it as simply as something as part of linguistics, that, you know, um, if you had uh, meals of the day, it was part of a frame that included breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <clears throat> you know, that you learn the structures like that all over the place, that you are unaware of them, that they are unconscious, but they were there. And here's the structure that they had. You know, if you say, okay, uh, what, what are your meals of the day? People say, oh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They would know what, what's in the frame. And, uh, you know, he pointed, he was the person who first pointed this out and pointed out that it was everywhere, that framing was a universal thing, that everybody framed as part of mental structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can't get away from it. I mean, you use it all the time. And now that we know something about the neural system, we can see that um, very, very common neural structures that arise spontaneously um, are the kind of neural structures behind framing. I mean, you know, there's a reason for it given the way our brains work. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Fillmore was right that it's a natural thing, and now we have a neural explanation for it. Don't you think those more effective instead of every individual trying to learn framing for some big organization? I don't know, maybe a political party to do most of that framing for people and make sure that they have their values and their ideas reflected in clear terms that are already pre-framed? Um, it would be, it's a very valuable thing to do uh, and very few people can do it. Well, I mean, the Republicans do it pretty well, though, right? We just watched a clip from the New York Times that showed every single Republican leader talking about uh, freedom from vaccines, liberty from vaccines. No one can be forced to take a vaccine. It seems like they're, talking, they're singing from the same sheet of talking points there. Well, that's a special case of um, government mandates. So the, they're against any kind of government mandate. And this is one. So for them, uh, it's just a special case of something that that's already there for them. Are they against all government mandates, though? No, they're against uh, progressive government mandates. <laughs> that's my question. I was thinking about this, things like prayer in school. There's all kinds of things yes. that they, they mandate. Or, you know, restricting voting rights, restricting women's rights to uh, access abortion, etc., they, they are very fond of mandates when it is in the favor of their ideas. Here's another question from Evan Light. Why won't Democrats take an aggressive approach? Unity, help, fair share aren't doing great. This is a topic you've covered a lot in the past about the well, antipathy Democrats have toward framing. and. Yeah, there's a, a view that's implicit. Uh, that has to do with Cartesian reason, rationality. That being a Democrat means that you just, you know, follow the, the dictates of reason. 
And it's much more than that. It has to do with empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, more, much more than just reason. And because the empathy is unconscious, they see it as just part of reason. But it's not just part of reason. You know, it's not, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. He didn't say, I care, therefore I am. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, I think, therefore I care, or anything like that. Um, you know, but if you are a Democrat, what makes you a Democrat is empathy. And that's not said. People don't say that, you know, the Democratic Party is the party of empathy, the party that cares about people. The party that, that you know, Obama said it, but it hasn't been said recently. Occasionally, you'll get Biden saying it because Biden believes it, but it's but most Democratic politicians are not there, are not saying it. You know, the the Progressive Democratic Caucus doesn't talk about empathy. Mm -hmm. Do you think they ever will? Or do you think we'll just get a second term of Trump and then maybe talk about it more after that, if there's a chance to talk about it after that? Well, I think the the main thing is you have to intellectualize it. To, to get there, and you know the uh, uh, the ninety six Democrats that are the former progressive Democrats uh, have to do with social intuitions rather than the intellectualizing of them. Mm -hmm. You know they don't they don't intellectualize they reason according to their social values, and they don't ask about you know what brings those social values together. That's not who they are. You know, that's not, not what makes them effective. What makes them effective is they act on the social values. Um, and I can't complain about that. It's important that we have a bunch of people acting on those social values. And the last question here is from Kim Cooper. How do we sign up for the free newsletter? I can't afford the podcast. I can answer this one. The podcast is free. It doesn't cost anything. We did put on Substack a new newsletter we're putting out. Uh, called Frame Lab, imagine that, and uh, it will remain free. But some people, George, I think I've told you this, have actually given us money to write and to produce the podcast, and so we're going to make these things more frequent. And we definitely thank everyone who's contributing. Uh, that'll help us do things like transcripts and uh, other kinds of goodies as as things go along, and and help professionalize this a bit. Uh, as you can tell, we're a little bit out of practice, but uh, give us a little time, and we will get back to where we were before with FrameLab, and we plan to have all kinds of interesting guests on and talk about interesting things as the future arrives. I think, you know, we're in this little window where mm -hmm. because Biden won, because the Trump threat's not there, it feels a little safe, but we're starting to get that fear of next year, and, and things might get a little twisted again with these authoritarian Republicans and with, you know, Trump starting to rise again in the background. Well, again... Um People are not talking about an authoritarian threat. Some people are. I'd some say. people are. Yeah. I mean, yeah, no, clearly, some some Democrats are, mm -hmm. but it's not something that is out there generally in public. It's not something that people naturally bring up. You know, yeah, people who are thinking talk about it because they know what the they know what the threat is about, and uh, it's not a bad idea to. Uh, 
to, to point out what that is and why it is an authoritarian threat and what authoritarianism is. Unfortunately, the people who are evoking the specter of authoritarianism and tyranny are the people opposing things like vaccines, and a lot of those people would be more than happy to have democracy overthrown and Trump installed as a dictator. So, again, we see the uh, what happens when only one side engages in actively framing the debate while the other side uh, kind of sits on the sidelines and doesn't, right. doesn't take the field. That's right. Look, in the case of vaccines... It is absolutely necessary that people talk up vaccines and that they know why they talk up vaccines and what that's about. It's about life and death. It's about are you going to are people going to live or die? You know, ultimately that's what it's about. It's or about you, freedom. It's about freedom. I and mean, even if you just get sick for a while, uh, and can you know manage to get through COVID, your freedom is still taken away. I mean, it certainly is about freedom. And so many things are. I mean, that's what's coming out of this talk. You know, um, you, people don't see what if where, what things are freedom issues. And if you're permanently disabled by COVID, you're not free. If you're driven into bankruptcy by hospital bills, you're not free. Exactly. If you're dead from a preventable disease that can be managed or mitigated by a vaccine, you're not free. So um, when it comes to freedom and vaccines, I think it's clear which side has the stronger argument for being the side of freedom and liberty. But nobody's making the argument, I guess, is the point. That's the point. All yeah. right, George, well, we'll be back soon with another episode. And thank you all for listening today. Thanks, Gil.